Welcome back to Future City here on WYPR, our monthly radio conversation that moves to the question from what's wrong to what's next. Each month on the show, we lift up examples of innovative ideas making positive changes in other cities and ask, could they work here? Are they already working here? And if not, why not? I'm your host, Wes Moore. So last month, Baltimore School CEO Sonia Sontalises warned that Baltimore City's public school system could face a $16 million budget gap in 2021. This is in the midst of a statewide debate over a new formula for school spending in the General Assembly. Maryland state senators and delegates are debating, implementing, and paying for the recommendations made by the Commission on Innovation and Excellence in Education, or better known as the Kerwin Commission. Debates are raging over the cost of fully paying for the current commission's recommendations, especially the funding formula that will determine what the state of Maryland will pay for versus what the financial responsibilities of the counties are and specifically the responsibilities for Baltimore City. So today on the show, we're discussing the state of education in Baltimore and the state of Maryland, efforts to improve education here, and also exploring what we can learn from other jurisdictions around the country and even around the world. So first, we are honored to be joined by William Britt Kerwin, who is the Chancellor Emeritus of the University System of Maryland and is the Chair of the Commission on Innovation and Excellence in Education, commonly known as the Kerwin Commission, who actually then takes his name. And also, we're joined by Mark Tucker, who is the Chief Consultant to the Kerwin Commission and Founding President of the National Center on Education and the Economy. Gentlemen, it is a pleasure to have you both here. Thank you so much for making the time. Thank you, Wes. It's an honor to be on your show. Honor to have you here. And, and Dr. Kerwin, if it's okay, I'll start with you. Sure. This is a, an, a, not just an incredibly exciting time, but it's an important time in the education conversation that we are having about how are we preparing our students for the 21st century. Right. Can you talk to our listeners a bit about the origin right. of the commission? Sure. What got us here in the yeah. first place? Couldn't agree with you more. Uh, this is such an incredibly important moment for our state and for our city because uh, we have uncovered very significant issues that need to be addressed for the future of our state, but even more important for the future of our young people. In the end of the 2016 legislative session, Governor Hogan and the General Assembly came together in a bipartisan effort to create this commission and gave it a very audacious charge to provide recommendations so Maryland schools would perform at the level of the best performing schools in the world and then cost out the uh, implementation of the policy recommendations and develop a funding formula so that uh, they could be implemented in an efficient way. In this day and age, nation's economies are built on highly skilled workforce. And so if we don't have a workforce that's comparable to that's being produced in the best education systems in the, in the world, we're going to fail. When we started the commission, and instantly it was a very eclectic group on the commission. The collective bargaining units were represented. The business community was represented. Education professionals were represented. The State Board of Education was represented. So, and, and you know, that made it a complicated process because you got all these different viewpoints. However, it's the only way we could get to meaningful rec recommendations. That's how you can build a, a consensus report, which we've done. Now, when we started the process, Many of us came there thinking we'd read the press clippings. Maryland's got good schools. We'd been rated in being the top five or maybe even one year the best school system in, in the U.S. So, you know, we thought, okay, maybe we've got a problem here or there. But well, overall, things look pretty good. 
And so our first task uh, was to peel back the onion. Where is Maryland? If we want to make recommendations, those were good as the best. Where are we now? And it was just a a continuing discovery of very troubling things. First of all, overall, our students don't perform well on national uh, uh, tests, the so-called National Assessment of Education Progress. We're very much in the middle of the pack. And that would be okay if the U.S. was the shining city on the hill in education. We're not. We're very mediocre, too. So the first thing we learned is we are very mediocre in a country that is very mediocre in terms of student outcomes. But then other troubling things. We have significant funding inequities, and that is a particular problem in in Baltimore City. This leads, quite frankly, to funding equities not based on income but on race, Uh, and that was very troubling. We learned that teaching is no longer a career. It's a revolving door. There was a study out that showed that 47% of teachers leave the profession after two years. Well, how are you going to build a good teaching force with that kind of turnover? Every state has to have a college and career-ready standard. Maryland has a very low one. They chose to have a very low one. It is that you can read at the 10th grade level and you can pass an Algebra One assessment. That's what Maryland says is college and career-ready. So this last uh, June, when we had all these high school graduates, here is the shocker, and this ought to keep every Marylander up at night. Fewer than 40% of high school graduates meet that standard. So what does that mean for our workforce in the future? And what does it mean for these young people? I mean, we have responsibility for these children. I mean, this is a moral issue from my point of view. We have got to do better. And that's what we set about to do with the great help of Mark Tucker and the NCEE. So, so Mark, let's actually let's bring you into this conversation here because, you know, one of the things I think people find interesting is this is not the first time that Maryland has actually gone through a process of creating a commission and thinking about funding for education. At the turn of the century, we had the Thornton Commission, which developed its own funding formula. Thinking about the Thornton Commission in context, what did that mean and how did that inform the process of the Kerwin Commission? And what did we learn from that process? Well, the Thornton Commission was put in place to come up with funding formulas for the state. Like this commission, the Thornton Commission did that, but it also said that there are a number of things that the state needs to do in order to improve its performance. And it calculated the the size of the funding increases it was going to request, as this commission did, based on the specific kinds of reforms that the Thornton Commission thought would lead to improved performance. What happened in the event, however, was that, as has always been the case in the past in Maryland and many other states, these formulas were used to calculate the amount of money going to the districts, but then the districts were allowed, in effect, to use the money as they wished. That is, without respect to the specific reforms that the Thornton Commission based its increases on. This is not unique to Thornton. It's actually common practice. But I think one of the most important things that this commission learned from that is that it needed to have a different kind of accountability. It needed to be accountable for actually implementing the reforms on which the new formulas would be based. But when we think about how those formulas then inform what are the things that we are going to focus on? I mean, I, I think about your organization, right? The, uh, the, the yep. National Center uh, on Education and the Economy. And you all actually developed uh, what you call the nine building blocks for a world-class education system. 
Can you talk about what those are and then how do those funding formulas then translate and correlate into what those building blocks are? We've been studying the countries with the best education systems in the world for almost 35 years. We know a lot about what they have been doing that accounts for that performance. And we took all of that into account in the advice we gave to the commission. We boiled that down into nine build, what we call the nine building blocks of success. The first of these is to provide strong supports for children and their families before students arrive at school. Pretty straightforward, but it turns out that when we, in detail for the commission, benchmarked what this country, and in particular Maryland does for families with children, against what the countries that are high performing do, I think the commission was shocked at the results. Most of the high performing countries give child allowances to families with young children based on the number of young children that they have. In many of those countries, they have a high quality and universal child care. That's before the early childhood education. And almost all of these countries have much more ample uh, early childhood education systems than does the United States. There are many other services uh, that these countries provide that we either do not or provide at a low level of quality or only to a few people. And so you'll find in this commission's recommendations, recommendations to considerably extend and improve the quality of early childhood education. In addition, for families that come from very low income communities, there is a whole set of provisions uh, in the recommendations for providing uh, what many people call wraparound services to the families that need help from the state of many different kinds, just in order, many of them, to survive. And we're talking here about homeless kids, about kids who need medical care, dental care, all kinds of uh, responses to trauma uh, that many of them experience. This is particularly true, by the way, in Baltimore, but in many other parts of the state as well. So there's a whole set of uh, issues here that relate to uh, essentially what happens to kids before they get to school and uh, provisions for making sure that when they do get to school, they're ready to learn. Second, uh, many of these countries, almost all of them, in fact, provide more resources for at-risk students than for other kids. Some of these countries actually provide the very best teachers they have for the students that need them the most. What we discovered is Maryland actually does the reverse. The kids who need the most resources often get the least in Maryland. There are recommendations here to fix that. Third thing is developing world-class, highly coherent instructional systems. What you see in every one of these countries is a very strong curriculum. It is demanding. It is intellectually deep. It's intended to provide all kids, not just some kids, with a curriculum that will enable them to survive an era in which the robots are coming to take our jobs. So the, the commission addressed that in a whole bunch of different ways, but the core of it really is to have a very strong curriculum. So what we did, Wes, was we took their building blocks and we did a deep gap analysis. What do these high performers do versus what do we do in Maryland? And our report basically was closing those gaps. Hmm. And that led us to five major policy recommendations. Mark touched on the first one, early childhood. The second one is we have to transform teaching and make it a high status profession. 
There isn't a high-performing school system in the world where teaching isn't viewed as a high-status profession, like being a lawyer or a CPA or an architect. That's what we've got to create in Maryland. We've got all sorts of, I think, really thoughtful recommendations of how we're going to transform teaching, make it an attractive profession that will attract many of the best and brightest. The third thing we did was that we're saying the state must benchmark its curriculum against the best performing systems in the world. And we have to set as a target that we're going to get kids to a much higher standard college and career ready level by the 10th grade. And then in the 10th grade, they're going to have three pathways. They can do advanced placement, international baccalaureate. They can do early college and maybe even end up with a two-year degree, at least be well on their way to a two-year degree when they graduate high school. And then one of our big ideas is a third pathway is a very rigorous, serious CTE, career and technical education pathway, where we've brought the trades and the private sector in to set the standards. So when kids finish this pathway... They'll have an industry-recognized credential and be able to step into a forty or fifty or sixty thousand dollar a year job. There are plenty of such jobs out there. Everybody's saying we need better CTE in the country. Nobody's done it, but we have in this set of recommendations. The fourth policy bucket is we have to address the equity issues. It is an embarrassment. It, the citizens of the state, if they knew how inequitably we are funding our schools. We should all be embarrassed. We're fixing that with these recommendations. In our funding formula, we got all sorts of triggers to ensure that schools serving high concentrations of poverty get the resources they need. And then the the fifth policy bucket is a very serious, rigorous accountability structure so that the citizens of the state will have high confidence that the recommendations that we have put forth, uh, when they're fully phased in in 10 years, we'll get the results we all want to see. And the accountability system isn't going to allow us to spend money on old practices that aren't working. We're going to have support structures so that school systems and schools can get the right policies and practices in place, and then the money flows to these schools so we can be sure we're spending the money on things that work. At the end of the day, Wes, what we have to ensure is that every kid in our state, in every zip code in our state, has a chance to pursue the American dream. If we aren't doing that, we should be ashamed of ourselves as a state. It is, in my mind, I hate to moralize, but it is immoral to allow circumstances to exist where kids are not getting the resources they need to pursue the American dream. How can a state allow schools where you walk into it and you go to a water fountain And you can't drink the water because of lead. I mean, that makes me angry. We just, we're better than that as a state. And I think one of the very uh, beneficial things of the commission is we've gotten the truth out there. We have problems. (laughs) Now that we know we have problems, we got to fix them. And quite frankly, we've got a, we've got a, a plan that will do exactly that. What then are the next steps for right. the commission? Where are we now? Okay. And in six months from now, where, where, do, where do you hope that we're at? Yeah, okay. So um, the commission has completed its work. We uh, have a beautifully phased-in 10-year plan. At the end of the 10 years, we fully implemented all of the five policy areas. And it does cost more money. By the time do we get to the end of the 10th year, we would be spending $3.8 
billion dollars more on our schools than we had planned to spend. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's about a 30% increase. It's about a 2.3% increase a year for 10 years. And we've got the policy recommendations, which everybody, even the governor, agrees are good policy recommendations. We've got the funding formula in place. This is going to be rolled into a bill that will be introduced at the General Assembly, and it will then be debated and acted upon at the General General Assembly. Could I just say two things about the cost? Of course. A lot of people say, well, oh, can we afford to do this? And I look at them and say, what are you talking about? Can we afford a situation where fewer than 40% of our high school graduates can read at the 10th grade level and pass an Algebra 1 assessment test? What kind of state are we going to have? We can't afford not to do this. Maryland isn't a very big spender on education. Here we are, the wealthiest state, by some measures, in the nation. By many measures. And quite frankly, we're a piker when it comes to spending on education. Let me give you a statistic that that I think tells a really powerful point. Right now, on a per-student funding basis, we rank 18th in the country. Yet we're the wealthiest state in the union. Let's say Santa Claus dropped $3.8 billion into our budget tomorrow. And now we're fully funded with the commission recommendations. You know where we'd rank? Seventh. There'd be six states that are spending even more money. We're just saying bring our spending up in Maryland to the level of of the the best funded systems are. We're not saying to do something that's sort of off the charts, that's out out of the realm of possibility. We'd just be up in the top 10 and we would have a world class system. Yeah, let me make one one additional point here. Uh, Massachusetts is the only state among the uh, American states that is anywhere near close to the top performers worldwide. They, too, proposed a very large increase to a Republican governor. That Republican governor said, this makes sense for Massachusetts because it's the key to our future. He also said, I'm not going to raise any taxes, but we are going to pay for it. And what happened in Massachusetts was that the increased economic activity in Massachusetts that was the result of that investment and the higher skills of its workforce paid for the reforms. This is not to say that that will be the case in Maryland, but I don't think that Maryland should think about the difference between what you spend now and what is being asked for as entirely paid for by an increase in taxes. What we're saying is we got a proposal that would produce a world-class education system, and we put up some front money, and then it pays for itself. So there is, in some sense, eventually no cost to the state. It's what my grandkids would say, a no-brainer. But unfortunately, there are forces out there that are trying to prevent this from happening. So it's going to be a, a real struggle in the General Assembly. But I have to believe that at the end of the day, people will understand too much is at stake for our future and for the future of our children not to get this done. We're also coming off of a uh, a, a essentially a 10-year bull market economically, right? Uh, where we've watched the, the value of our, of our corporate partners and the coffers that go right. into our governments uh, continually increase. We're watching a time where we have uh, relatively historically low rates, so cash is relatively cheap. Right. At the same time, we have kids who are attending schools that don't have heat in the I winter it, and it, air conditioning during the summer. Yeah. That's not the America we like to think we are. I've been speaking with William Britt Kerwin, 
Chancellor Emeritus of the University System of Maryland and Chair of the Commission on Innovation and Excellence in Education, or better known as the Kerwin Commission. Additionally, I've been speaking with Mark Tucker, Chief Consultant to the Kerwin Commission and Founding President of the National Center on Education and the Economy. I'm Wes Moore, and you are listening to Future City here on WYPR. We have to take a brief break, but do not go away. When we come back, you'll hear from two education advocates with very different takes on what it will take to make Baltimore and Maryland schools the best that they can be. All of that right after the break. Future City is made possible by McCormick & Company, a global flavor company helping teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat with healthy flavors through their Flavor for Life program. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com. Welcome back. I'm Wes Moore, and you're listening to Future City here on WYPR. Each month on the show, we hear about innovative responses to our city's most pressing problems. We also check in on how other cities are approaching similar problems and ask what Baltimore can learn from them. On today's show, we're discussing education in Baltimore and beyond. What is it going to take to improve schools for students across the city? And how will changes to education policy and funding in Maryland affect schools here? So before we went to break, we heard from two people at the heart of the debate over education. Dr. William Britt Kerwin, the head of the Kerwin Commission, which has been working on education funding and policy proposals for the state, and Mark Tucker, who is a chief consultant to the Kerwin Commission and founding president of the National Center on Education and the Economy. But I'm thrilled that we're now going to hear two other perspectives on education in Baltimore and the state of Maryland. Dr. Kalila Harris is the managing director for K-12 education policy at CAP, the Center for American Progress. And Carol Park is a senior policy analyst at the Maryland Public Policy Institute. Thank you both for joining us, and we are so excited to have this conversation. Thanks for having us. In full disclosure to our listeners, I have been a, not just a, a friend, but a longtime fan of Dr. Harris and her work in, in education. Thanks so much. And, uh, and, and her, Feelings mutual. <laughs> and her voice and her impact in this space is, is, is undeniable. But I want to ask you a question about where we are right now when it comes to Baltimore City Schools, mm-hmm. where people will talk about uh, how well Maryland is doing in education. Let's take the microscope and let's drill down mm-hmm. a little bit. Yeah. Where are we in Baltimore City when it comes to the conversation about public schools? Public schooling is not something that is relegated only to the school system and the CEO or superintendent of the school district. The unwillingness of many stakeholders to form an ecosystem that would support Baltimore City's public schools being high quality for every child is unfortunate. There is no way a single person is going to wave a magic wand and cause Baltimore City public schools to be all that it could be to match all that the students and families are. We've had decades of education reforms that have really focused on uh, a schools alone strategy. So if you go to a great school, then the assumption is that the trajectory of your life is going to improve and change beyond bounds. Unfortunately, what we know is um, there has to be a clear economic development strategy for the entire city and Baltimore metropolitan region that includes the schools. You can't have kids coming from communities that have had historic disinvestment 
that have had historic systemic inequity that experiences the vestiges of racism and enslavement still today, whether it be through predatory lending or redlining practices, um, and, and say, you know, the reason the schools aren't working is because of corruption. Whose corruption? Wouldn't it be all of our corruption? Because we have not made the commitment to ensure that the children that walk into our schools are prepared for schools. And that is not a singular responsibility of parents who have also been let down by the public school district. To say that these people who love their children are working hard, for the most part taxpayers just like everyone else, don't want the best for their children, and therefore they need to do more to make sure their kids are ready, and that the city government, that the state government, that surrounding communities aren't responsible for having healthy and whole communities that support students in schools that are quality. We're not going to get anywhere. And it's a matter of making a decision to support all of our students, to make sure there are accountabilities in place, of course. But it can't be limited to, well, the CEO and the Board of School Commissioners needs to do A, B, and C. And if they don't, then they must not be competent, which is racially tinged. And they must not be capable of managing resources or hearing the voices of community members to practice self-determination so that they know what they want for their children. So, Carol, how does Baltimore City then match up, stack up against other large metropolitan jurisdictions? Baltimore City ranks at the bottom third in the nation in terms of student outcomes, only ahead of Cleveland and Detroit. 15% of city's elementary and middle school children are proficient in math, and only 13% are proficient or advanced in English. So the numbers are very dismal. So some 96% of Baltimore City school students uh, have populations that are characterized by concentrated poverty. Roughly 40% of students are eligible for reduced price meals. So you can see that poverty is at the heart of the problem that we're trying to tackle when it comes to um, city students' underperformance. But it's an issue that sometimes tend to be overlooked by policymakers. So they're targeting at how to improve the curriculums without necessarily thinking about how to address the inequality, the learning opportunity and learning gap between students of color and wider Asian students. It's a topic that Maryland public policy has been focusing on a lot over the past couple of months. There should be more emphasis on it for uh, in the coming legislative session, but not a lot of legislators are actually paying attention to this issue of inequality. This conversation about inequality and, and, and funding always has a way of peaking itself up, but the truth is in reality, as you pointed out, we're talking about children. And again, it's children who are growing up in poverty. Mm-hmm. And so when the conversation then becomes about, is this too much funding for X, Y, and Z, it it is ignoring the reality that we've already submised these children to. Mm -hmm. When people understand that with a sense of context, but then they also come back about the funding stack, where does Baltimore City rank when it comes to the funding stack about what students are receiving per pupil? But then also, how does that then match up to the needs that we have for Baltimore City kids that are growing up into your point when you have 40% of the population, children's population, who are growing up in poverty? 
So there's this notion that funding is the biggest problem when it comes to why Baltimore City students are underperforming. And now I want to correct this notion early on in our conversations because actually from the latest data for 2019, uh, it shows that Baltimore City is spending the third most in the nation among 100 largest school districts in the country. So Baltimore City in 2019 spent little over 16,000 per pupil, actually only trailing after New York City and Boston. Boston is known for having one of the best school districts in the country. So you can see um, that money is may not necessarily be the biggest problem. So when you're comparing these figures to the fact that Baltimore City is students are one of the worst performers in the country, there is a huge discrepancy in outcomes um, from these money figures. So I'd also like to uh, make clear early on in this conversation that that data point is obfuscating. It is used to cause confusion, and it doesn't offer us any details about the quality of funding for Baltimore City schools and the equity of that funding. Most students in this country do not go to large school districts. They go to school districts that are 10,000, 15,000, 20,000 tops. Some of those school districts spend $30,000 per pupil. And so to say that because Baltimore is spending somewhere between 16 and 19,000 per pupil, and it's the third highest of the 100 largest districts makes no sense and adds no value to this conversation. And I agree, the conversation is not only about how much money we spend, but it's also about racism. Um, And I'm going to say that in a black and white term, racism, people are unwilling to name it, they dance around it, and the question becomes, whose children deserves to have a quality of schooling? And oftentimes when you look at how people talk about Baltimore City schools. There are a lot of dog whistle, veiled terminologies being used. And this this data point about third highest expenditure of 100 largest districts, what are the poverty levels of those school districts? How does it stack up to job opportunities and housing opportunities and transit opportunities for the families in those communities? Where are those communities situated? So when you layer those pieces of information over it, you find that this data point is not essential to a conversation about how Maryland cares for its students. It is rarely used to provide a vision or guidance into what we can do differently to close gaps in opportunity. And I don't even want to get to gaps in achievement because people often talk about gaps in achievement between black, white, black, Asian, whatever the case may be, Latinx as well. And they don't want to talk about the gaps in opportunities, which cause the achievement gap. The achievement gap is a symptom of gaps in opportunities and lack of equity. Carol, with that as a context, you've stated that you have concerns about how Baltimore City is going to pay for the current commission recommendations. For Baltimore City alone, uh, the numbers could come upwards of $300 million. What are the concerns that you'd have about that, particularly in context of the fact that we are talking about a population that has been for so long so woefully neglected when it comes to basic resources? So while um, Dr. Harris and I might have a different take on the data, um, I and Maryland Public Policy Institute entirely agree with her on the fact that the quality of spending doesn't really reflect the problems that are 
the largest in Baltimore, which relate to inequality and opportunity gaps. So as a solution to that, Carwan Commission is proposing that Maryland spend another additional $4 billion per year for the coming decade to address this issue. And specifically for Baltimore City, the commission has recommended that the city pay additional $330 million in annual education spending for the next decade. However, um, the problem with that is that the plan is essentially trying to continue the status quo instead of physically addressing and coming up with solutions that would tackle the inequality and opportunity gap problem. So in one of my uh, recent piece on the Washington Post and in one of my blog, I proposed that there are alternative ways that Maryland and Baltimore City can try to address this. And one solution that we came up with is to expand private school choice options. And that's because for, so there's a lot of studies um, that show empirical evidence that show that charter schools, for instance, can help um, close some of the opportunity gap for black and Hispanic children. Um, and one on one study, notably by Stanford University's Center for Research and Education Outcome, it found that black charter school students math gain, um, actually made math gains equivalent to 47 extra days of learning, and that Hispanic charter students made reading gains equivalent to 77 additional days of learning. 11 out of 12 um, recent empirical studies showed that um, charter school and school choice in general can be very helpful in closing some of the racial segregation problem in uh, struggling school districts. So we propose that Maryland should consider this option. But however, Baltimore City has been going in uh, somewhat the opposite direction over the year. So in 2018, Baltimore City cut charter school budget by 5.5 million and then only approved one out of six recent charter school applications. So we identified that this as a trend that is uh, somewhat problematic when it comes to exploring um, in innovative solutions to education challenges in Baltimore City. So, you know, um, there are multiple empirical studies that show there is um, nominal, if not negative impact of charter schools. Charter schools are different in every state of the union. In Maryland, charter schools are in fact public schools where the employees work for the public school system. And so using a blanket statement about what charter schools can do for Baltimore City also seems a distraction. You have to take a balanced approach to charter schools. They are not a panacea and they are also not a monolith. They are not the same, even within a district. And frankly, opening more charter schools when there's a declining enrollment really can negatively impact charter schools because you do not have enough students. You, you cause those schools to cannibalize one another and start to compete with one another for students because there are not enough students to fill all of those seats. Um, and thereby you have folk who are competing for resources in the philanthropic sector, in the corporate sector, when School choice should equate to every public school being a quality option. I am not believer in public funds going to non-public schools. If you get a voucher, for example, to attend a private school that costs $30,000 and your voucher is for $15,000 or $20,000, affluent families are going to only are going to only be the ones who can 
take advantage of that voucher. So again, unless you're saying uh, the state of Maryland or Baltimore is going to pay 100% of tuition for students to attend private schools, again, you are privileging people who are already privileged to have a buffer for sending their children to a school. They probably could already access through scholarships at those schools um, if their income was at a rate that would afford them the voucher. In any community, you have to look at a whole portfolio of solutions, and charters can be a true asset to providing innovative options for families, but it cannot be the focus, and nor will it be a solution for every child. And as long as we look at solutions that are talking about pulling resources away from the traditional schools for families who are never going to have the agency, at least in this generation, to take advantage of the the myriad of ways choice rolls out. Which schools work for my child? How are they going to get there? When we have a governor who has eliminated a transportation option that the state agreed to through the red line, uh, making it limited for families to be able to get across town to begin with, um, you can't then say, let's give all the families choices when, in fact, they don't have a choice. Right. Choice comes through access to resources. And if you are unable to go from East Baltimore to West Baltimore because of a limited transportation and you find that there's a school that's a great fit for your child in West Baltimore, saying that school choice is going to be an answer for education really does not make sense. And so approving only one out of six charters uh, was probably a balanced decision that they made and really should be happening around the country. I wouldn't submit that all charters should close and, you know, get them out of here or anything like that because there should be different opportunities for children. But the idea that school choice is somehow going to be a silver bullet to get students into schools that they need to be attending makes no sense in the city of Baltimore. I've been speaking with Dr. Kalila Harris and Carol Park. Dr. Harris is Managing Director for K-12 Education Policy at the Center for American Progress. Carol Park is a Senior Policy Analyst at the Maryland Public Policy Institute. You are listening to Future City here on WYPR. We have to take a brief break, but do not go away. When we come back, you'll hear the rest of my conversation with Dr. Harris and Carol Park. Welcome back. I'm Wes Moore, and you're listening to Future City here on WYPR. Each month on the show, we hear about innovative responses to our city's most pressing problems. We also check in on how other cities are approaching similar problems and ask what Baltimore can learn from them. On today's show, we're discussing education in Baltimore and beyond. What is it going to take to improve schools for students across the city? And how will changes to education policy and funding in Maryland affect schools here? Dr. Harris, you you mentioned earlier that uh, you brought up the governor Mm -hmm. and you brought up the decisions that the governor has made when it comes to everything from transportation, education. The argument that the governor is making around the Kerwin Commission Mm -hmm. right now is that it's too expensive. It'll cost. It'll require hefty tax increases, unfair allocation, and that education isn't spent wisely right now. To that, you say what? Kerwin Commission is too expensive for whom? Uh, There is not a pie of money, and there is no scarcity in Maryland, and we can afford to fully fund Curran. We have some of the most affluent people in the country, in the state of Maryland. What we also have is an upside-down tax code that privileges the affluent 
and privileges corporations, and we can clean up our tax code to find lots and lots of money to fund schools equitably. Even in the city of Baltimore, we can have institutions like Johns Hopkins and the University of Maryland and other institutions of higher education and nonprofits that are benefiting from zero taxes to pay even a tiny percentage of the taxes they would owe could fully fund our schools in Baltimore, but they don't. There are lots of special interests in our state that have tax breaks that could be eliminated if for no other reason than we need to be progressive in our tax code and not regressive. So when people talk about things like sales taxes, I disagree with that because a sales tax is going to heavily impact people with lower incomes, right? People with fewer resources. I think our one percenters and even a percentage of our one percenters in the state can afford to pay more of their fair share, which is what equity is about, fairness, to make sure that all children, not only black and Latinx children, but poor white children in this state. Again, this conversation tends to be racialized um, when it benefits people who say that Baltimore gets enough money, but then all of a sudden we're talking about income um, when we say that Baltimore has enough and they need to do with what they have. So, yeah, I want to also take a step back and go back to um, Governor Hogan's concerns. So Hogan is claiming that the Carbon Commission's plan is too expensive for the taxpayers, not because like Maryland residents or and taxpayers are not affluent, but from various perspectives. So Governor Hogan's budget office did the calculations and they came up with the numbers and showed that income taxes would have to rise by 39%, sales tax by 89%, and property tax by almost 500%. So, But that's because they are excluding closing tax loopholes and taxing the corporate wealthy and the individually wealthy. I, I guess my question still remains for you whether or not there are special interests loopholes um, and corporate tax loopholes that we can close. Yeah, that could be one, one way to tackle it. I'm not saying that um, it's, it's, it's an issue that I haven't looked into in particular details, but that would be one way. But I don't think that really addresses the fact that overall the current commission is quite expensive. So there is this media and journalists are like misunderstanding the, the whole four, $4 billion additional funding. They're taking it as a total number. But our um, chief economist at the Maryland Public Policy Institute, Dr. Stephen Walters, he, when he did the calculations, um, he came up with the total figure, which is $31.9 billion for the coming decade, which is a lot. Maryland's annual budget is just around $45 billion. So if you look at it that way, um, it helps. And the fact that uh, Maryland, education and Medicaid together already makes up uh, more than 40% of Maryland's total budget, and this figure is going to become even more skewed. So then uh, a lot of other um, stakeholders and people who are interested in like transportation policy, so for instance, congestion um, in the Montgomery County is a huge issue, and everyone is debating about uh, what can be done to address that. But what's going to happen if all the additional um, tax revenue is being dedicated to solely address education? So the Maryland Fair Funding Coalition um, also has research uh, that shows that $2 billion in state revenue um, will be generated by 2030 when you adjust for inflation. Uh, so we, we can look at this 
in a, in a number of ways, we can have dueling research to talk about whether or not taxes can go to schools only or whether or not we have the funding to um, cause there to be less congestion in Montgomery County. Um, and sure, we can use a little bit of money for that, and that money can go to public transportation instead of widening highways, which is not climate conscious and is not sensical. Dr. Harris, oftentimes I think people will use the words equity and equality interchangeably. Mm-hmm. Are they the same? They're absolutely not the same. They are different. I'd say that equity in many ways is a tool to get to equality, but we have a long way to equality being what we are trying to work for. People conflate equality and equity, and they have this belief that if everybody gets a little bit or if everybody gets some, they should do what they can with that and all boats will rise. Equality is not the goal here. It is equity in resources. There are always going to be families uh, who can do more for their students. And therefore, it's the responsibility of the community to make sure that other students have equitable access to similar resources. Because on its face, either you believe children can achieve or you don't. Um, And that's where that racial implication comes back in. And unfortunately, people are unwilling to take a clear racial equity lens. They want to focus on um, income equity and not layer over an explicit racial equity lens to the extent that in Baltimore, there's um, an observation of how black students are being treated in Montgomery County, of how Latinx students are being treated. When we see in Montgomery County Public Schools and Howard County Public Schools, the vitriol of doing something that costs little to no money, which is changing which schools children have access to by choice, you see families and members of the community coming out and saying that you should not bring those children to our schools, right? There's a possession of power. That conflation between equality and equity doesn't allow for observation of who is unwilling to see their power or their perceived power. Um, and when you have families who are and community members who are using vitriolic and hateful language to, to say that no one should have access to their schools because either they've earned it or, you know, they've done what they need to do to live in a particular community. That's when you talk about equality. Inequity is I know that I have more and my family has more. Therefore, as your neighbor, I recognize as a matter of fairness and as a matter of economic development, it will behoove me to make sure that your children has access to as many opportunities that my child has. And so we have examples in the state of citizens who really are saying, I don't want equity, right? I want there to be separate but equal. And separate but equal means you stay where you are, I'll stay where I am. I have more. That should be good enough for you. You can't come here and have the schools that my child has. What I would say to that is what the Supreme Court has said. Okay, you want to live in this community and you want to provide for your child, then we need to make sure equitable resources are extended to all of the children across the state. We've been speaking with Dr. Kalila Harris, who is the Managing Director for K-12 Education Policy at CAP, the Center for American Progress, and also Carol Park, who is a Senior Policy Analyst for the Maryland Public Policy Institute. Thank you both so much for joining this conversation and for leading on this issue. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Future City and this episode. As always, I want to leave you with a few thoughts. During this legislative session this year, like every year, we will debate the future of the state. And with conversations and votes 
around the Kerwin Commission leading the charge, it's obvious that how we define the future of the state will revolve around how we are educating our children. Listen, we can all agree that the cost of action is not small. However, we must also internalize and debate two realities. The first is that an action is costly too. What we will spend on remedying an undereducated population is multitudes higher in public safety costs, public health costs, and a collection of others. Additionally, we have been chronically and predictably unfair in our resource allocations, and that has made the hill that so many of our children have to climb so much higher. I believe deeply in fiscal responsibility. I believe deeply in the usage of data and metrics and facts when making our decisions. I also believe in justice and equity in all forms. And our future city must mean that we are being deliberate, courageous, intentional, and forward-looking to address historically biased and backwards execution at a time when our economy, as least as we've been told, is operating optimally. If we cannot get something big done now, when can we? Future City is produced and edited by Mark Gunnery. We welcome your feedback. Also, feel free to contact me directly on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at I am Westmore. If you want to learn more about some of the people and organizations we heard from today, or if you want to listen to previous episodes, please visit WYPR.org and look for Future City under the Programs and Features tab. Thanks to WYPR intern James Burroughs of Baltimore Lab School for providing original music for this episode. Future City airs here on WYPR on the third Wednesday of each month at 1 p.m. and then again at 9 p.m. So until next time, for 88.1 WYPR, your NPR news station, I'm Westmore. Future City is sponsored by grants from Josh and Janine Fiddler and the Baltimore Community Foundation.